Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5. We, we have stressed in our previous lesson, particularly last week, that Ephesians is divided into two parts, and I hope you saw last week how important this is in understanding the structure of a letter. Um, it's one thing just to, to say we've studied Ephesians or to say that, say that we've studied Romans and glean some theological truth from it, but the structure of these letters is important into helping us to understand the theological truths and perhaps to be able to draw out some of the more difficult areas of study. Um, we, I have never wanted to be a Bible teacher that just hit things superficially. There, there are plenty of people out there that are doing that, and I don't mean that in as, as disparaging ways it might have just sounded, but there, you can get that on any street corner. What I want for you is a deep and thorough understanding of what is God's Word. If God took the time and had the grace to reveal himself to us, and he didn't have to do that. Like Francis Schaeffer said, he's there, but he's not only there, but he's not silent. But if he's taking the time to reveal himself to us, I think we should take the time to dig into his word. I told you, some of you know before, back in the, back in the early 80s, uh, I, when the Houston Rockets were really starting to get good, uh, starting to be an effective basketball team, I, I could tell you, Every, every one of the 12 players on the Rockets, everyone who had a roster spot, I knew who the leading rebounders were, who the leading scorers, not just the main one, but, but all of them. If you went back 10 games, I could tell you what their record was over the past 10 games. I knew just about everything there was about the Houston Rockets. One day it dawned on me, I wonder how much good that's really doing me in the long term. Short term, it's fun. You can have conversations with people. And there's nothing wrong with being entertained and having good conversations. But how, how is that going to help me eternally? Now, if we're, and, and everybody in this room has something that you know from a secular level, you know that much information about, whether it's your work or, or some hobby that you may have. All I'm asking is, just put, let's just put that plus a little bit more into things that really are going to matter for eternity. So, yes, it is important to know who wrote Paul. I mean, who wrote the, the book of Ephesians. It's, it's important to know approximately when it was written and under what circumstances it was written. I mean, so earlier on in the letter when, when Paul says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus, we will know the significance of that statement, that he's actually a prisoner in Rome at the time. A prisoner, we would think of the Romans, but no, he thinks he's a prisoner in his mind. He's a prisoner of Jesus, not the Romans. It's important to know that before Paul calls upon us to a certain course of action, he lays down the groundwork for this incredible theology as to why we should behave that way. There are so many people out there that would, that would like to start with the second half of Ephesians and just teach that. Because that's, what, that's, what is, uh, that's the call to action. And it would be really neat to be able to do that, but it wouldn't be the letter to the Ephesians. You see, Paul sets it up in this incredibly, incredibly God-oriented, God-centered way. And it's driven by the Holy Spirit. And if this is driven by the Holy Spirit, and we've taken our time to come out on this busy Wednesday night, then we should thoroughly consider some of these issues. Hopefully last week you saw why it was so important to know that the audience of Paul's letter to the Ephesians originally was the Ephesian believers. And now the audience is believers all over the world. Paul is not, repeat, not, let me say it again, not speaking to unbelievers here. He's also not, not speaking to people who think that they're believers and, and, they're, and are really fooling themselves. He's not giving us a test to see if we're really in the faith. There are books that do that. There, there are passages, or rather, passages of Scripture that do that. Paul even says, test yourself, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. 
at one point. But that's not what's going on here. So if we're to avoid some serious error in biblical interpretation, and those errors are avoidable, then we need to know something of structure. Chapters 1 through 3 are essentially theology or doctrine. And chapters 4 through 6 are essentially applicational in nature, taking the theology of the first three chapters and expounding upon the ethical nature of Christian responsibility and duty. The ethical nature of Christian responsibility and duty. There is a Christian ethic. And what that Paul presents that Christian ethic in the last three chapters. So we've stressed who the author was. That was the Apostle Paul. Where was he? He's in Rome in prison himself, which is not the most pleasant of circumstances. Sometimes when Christians want to write books today, and I, uh, I know one real popular preacher out in California, he was, he was in, in essence, burned out. He took a, took a vacation, went up to Bear Mountain, wrote a book. Went, went and got a cabin and wrote a book. That's what happens to people. So they say, well, let's go up in the mountains. Let's just clear our minds of everything else. Let's get in a real beautiful situation, and we'll write down the thoughts that are on our head. Paul probably says, I wish I could have done that. He didn't go to a vacation resort to write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He was in jail, house arrest, but still jail when he did it. So we see that it was written by Paul in a particular circumstance to believers, not to the unbeliever, to describe either how they may become a believer or to an unbeliever who thinks that they are a believer. But this is written to believers to tell them not only how to behave, but why we should behave the way that we are called upon to behave. By the way, to be sure, there is gospel information in this letter. I mean, I don't know of any stronger presentation of the salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone than Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So certainly there's information there, but, but even then, Paul is reminding Ephesian believers of how they were saved in the past. He's looking back to the past and telling them they were saved by grace through faith. Therefore, there's a certain behavior that should characterize your life. Now, it's in this application section that we've seen, we've seen that believers are to walk or to have a lifestyle that's characterized by unity. By preserving the unity that's already ours by means of our position in Christ. Now, the... The fact that we have a position in Christ was made clear in those first three chapters. So having made it clear that we're positionally in Christ, now he says, I want you to live consistently with that. You see, if we didn't have the first part, the, the second part would make no sense. So that's why, that's why Paul spent so much time in that. We're part of a family, whether we like it or not. The people that are sitting next to you are your brothers and sisters, whether you like it or not. And we are to function in unity. No, no, be hitting these people. But we're to be functioning in unity, whether we like it or not. We should act accordingly with our position in Christ. In addition, Paul tells us that we're to walk in holiness. Holiness is chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. We're, we're righteous positionally. We have positional holiness. Now, Paul says we need to walk experientially that way. We need to walk as set-apart ones, not as arrogant ones. Not as ones that, that have our noses tilted in the air as if we have an air of superiority to someone else, uh, but as ones who have been set apart in Jesus Christ. We also saw, and we, we studied for the last couple of weeks, that, that the Christian walk should be marked by love. We are to walk or to have a lifestyle that is consistently 
loving. The Christians should walk in love as was modeled by Christ, who gave himself for us. Not by the immoral behavior that was modeled by the sons of disobedience. We studied that last week. The last two weeks, we saw what love is, and then we saw what love is not. And that Paul, Paul gives us both ends of the spectrum so that we can see, we ought to be able to readily see, if we're acting in love or if we're not acting in love. This passage should remind us of Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. But before he tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is, remember he gives us a list of the things that are, are outcomes from the flesh. And then he tells us the things that are outcomes from the Spirit. And we look at those two lists, and Paul essentially is saying it's self-evident. You just look in the mirror, reflect on your day, and you'll be able to tell, was that something that the Holy Spirit motivated me to do? Or was that something that the flesh motivated, motivated me to do? It is self-evident. Now Paul is going to exhort us to walk in the light in verses 5 through 17. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. And finally, he'll exhort us, to walk in wisdom. Now read with me verses 7 through 14, our passage for tonight. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11, and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But the things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So tonight we consider what it means to walk in the light. In this paragraph, verses 7 through 14, three commands are issued. Three imperatives, if you will. The first imperative is do not be partakers with them. Do not be partakers with them. The second imperative will be, or the second command is walk as children of light. First command, do not be partakers with them. I'll explain who the them is in just a moment. Second command, walk as children of light. And the third command, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but expose them. Do not be partakers with them. Walk as children of light. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Again, verse 7 says, Therefore do not be partakers with them. First imperative or first command. Paul has just explained in the previous paragraph that the children or the sons of disobedience are to be recipients of God's wrath. We made it clear that if you're a recipient of God's wrath in the way Paul's talking about in Ephesians, that means the person is not saved. They're an unbeliever. Uh, it's inconsistent with those who are objects of God's love, that's you and me, to become fellow partakers of those who are objects of God's wrath. It's not consistent for you and me as objects of God's love to become a partaker, or could I call this 
a person in close partnership with one who is an object of wrath uh, by joining in their impure, their selfish, or their immoral conduct. It makes no sense to do that. This is, who, this is where we are positionally. This is where they are positionally. They're in darkness. They're object of God's wrath. Why in the world would we want to go back there and participate as a partner with them when while we have our arm around them in that partnership, we know the whole time that they are about to be the, the recipient of God's wrath? It makes no sense. I'll tell you one of the reasons why we do it, which makes no sense, is because in some warped way, when I look back to who, we, who I used to be, or when we look back at who we used to be as children of disobedience and children of wrath ourselves, there's something that is morbidly attractive about that. Something in our flesh says that really looks alluring. And so we go back to that, and that's when we soil ourselves by behaving in a way that we're not. And so that's what Paul says, don't do that. It makes no sense. It's like putting on your finest Armani suit and your ballet shoes or whatever the finest shoes may be and, uh, and, a, and a nice zania tie and go, going out on the farm and jumping in and starting to clean out the pig pen. I've only seen a couple pig pens in my life. And I'll tell you what, I went from here to the back of the room before I started smelling the pig pen. And it was rotten. It may look one way in a picture, but in real life it's not that way. So this is who we are. Why do we want to go wallow around in a pig pen when we are dressed as children of love, not children of disobedience? So in verse, verse 5, Paul makes a very clear statement. Don't be partakers with them. Then in verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now you notice what it doesn't say here? Look, at, look, at, look very carefully. It says, for you were formerly darkness. It doesn't say, for you formerly walked in the darkness, does it? No. It says, you were darkness. You were at one time sons of disobedience, upon whom the wrath of God was going to come. But that's who you were formerly. Paul's making it clear here that he's not talking to believers. I mean, not talking to unbelievers. He says, that's who you were formerly. This is one of the ways we can, we can tell who the audience of the letter is. This is who you used to be. But now you are light. And then the command, walk as children of light. The second of the imperatives, or the second of the commands. This is something that I think Paul is very adept at, but the entirety of the New Testament stresses this, that we're to live consistently with who we are in Christ. If we're to, if we're to do that, we need to know what it means to be in Christ, and that's, that was the first three chapters. Now we're to live consistently with that, in spite of the temptation to go back and live like something that we're not. Now, this is not to make anybody feel any better or to give any excuses, but we all have done that. We all have put on our good clothes and wallowed in the pig pen. Like the little boy who gets ready for church on a Sunday morning, his mama turns her, his back on, his, her back on him for just a moment, and then he goes outside, plays in the mud, and then comes back in, and mom's got to get him all dressed again. Give him another shower, get him dressed. Most of you have 
Most of us have been in a situation similar to that. We say, why did you do that? Why did you do that now of all times? But that's the same kind of thing we do when we go back to who we were when we were darkness. We were darkness, which symbolizes those who have not come to Christ. Now we're light. Now obviously, it's possible for children of light, those who are light, to live like we're not. Now, I know some, some out there would say that's not possible. They, they would say it's impossible. I mean, they, they come right out. It's impossible that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, it's impossible if you have the Holy Spirit to live as though you don't have the Holy Spirit and though you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus. Hogwash. Because this passage tells us this passage wouldn't be here if it wasn't possible. I'm not saying it's probable, but it's certainly possible. I'm not saying it's desirable or it's excusable, but it's possible. There's some terrible theology out there in the land that is based entirely upon experience and not upon the Word of God. There have been pastors over the generations, starting with the Puritans. And the Puritans, by the way, weren't Puritans because they were so legalistic. I mean, that may have been something that characterized them. They were Puritans because they wanted to clean up the church. But it started back with the Puritans and has come through certain, certain aspects of Reformed theology even today. And pastors looked out over their congregations. One very famous pastor did. He looked out over his congregation that was full of a lot of, he called, Hollywood types. And he saw how they were acting in any, any way other than what he felt like a Christian should act. He's probably right about that. So instead of coming to the conclusion that maybe I need to teach this or maybe I need to sit down and talk with them about this or maybe we need to give them time to grow, he assumed that they must not be believers at all. Well, that's an assumption. It's not based on the text. Because we can take certain passages and distort them that way. You'll know them by their fruit. And they take that one passage and they distort it to mean something that it doesn't. But here we find, here we find in verse 8 that you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Imperative, walk as children of light. So it's possible for children of light to walk as children of darkness. Otherwise, the command would be totally unnecessary. And we, we talked about this last week, but we started it with eight minutes to go. And I knew that that was going to be a mistake because I knew I would have to rush it and maybe speak a little faster than I normally do. I know my, my pace of speech is sometimes too slow for many of you. I, I know I really picked it up at the end of the class last time. I know I'm, I'm joking there. But I know I, even for last time, I know I had to say some things that were a, a little quick. But in verse 5... For you know this was certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That passage is just very difficult for a lot of people. And the way that it's interpreted sometimes, in fact, one extremely respected New Testament scholar said this about that verse. He said, this is not to say that a believer might not fall into one of these sins, but rather concerns the person who is characterized by one or more of these sins. Well, in other words, if you do it once, you're okay, but if you do it twice, you're going to hell. Or do it twice, you're okay, but do it three times, you're going to hell. It's not what this passage says. In fact, it's even stronger than that. It says no immoral 
or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. None of them. Now listen, you may be able to slip by, and I hope you can, with a couple of those categories. Nobody in this room can slip by on all of them. Nobody has lived a life. Nobody, and I'll challenge you, challenge myself too. Nobody in this room has lived a life completely free of covetousness. Nobody. Nobody has lived a life that's completely free of idolatry. There's nobody in here, there's nobody on this planet who has not had something in a place of priority over Jesus Christ at some point in their life. That's what the passage says. It says, no one who is an immoral, impure person, or covetous man, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, used to, and this is one appropriate understanding, and this used to be mine, that the key word there was inheritance. I mean, you, you got into the kingdom, but you didn't have an inheritance in the kingdom. But actually, that's not what's going on here. I, I, this is a place I've changed my mind about. Because if you go back and look at the way Paul used inheritance in the beginning, he uses it as, he speaks of it as something that every believer has. This isn't talking about reward so much here. He's talking about being there in the first place. So as we concluded last time, we went over to 2 Samuel, and we saw that at the end of David's life, he, he gives this incredible psalm. He writes this incredible psalm and says, my hands are clean. Now, how could David say his hands are clean? Because David knew that in God's eyes, he wasn't considered a murderer. In God's eyes, he wasn't considered an adulterer. Human beings considered him that. But God never considered, not after, God, after David's confession, God doesn't consider him a murderer or an adulterer. He considered him a child who had committed those sins that had been forgiven. You see, the words in verse 5 do describe one who is unregenerate. No doubt, and that's, that's confirmed by verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The people in verse 5 are the sons of disobedience. So all Paul is saying there is that you have a position over here. Don't act like the people over here. They, they are going to be the chi a child of wrath. You, you are one who has an inheritance from God, which includes eternal life. That's all he's saying. It's not a warning saying, listen, if you're an immoral person, maybe you're not a Christian. Now listen, I'm not advocating immorality, nor am I advocating idolatry or being covet having covetedness in your life. Nobody does. And I'm not excusing it either. But I just want the passage to say what it says. And we don't need to read a whole lot of theology back into it that's not there. No, this is not a test to see if you're saved. It doesn't mean that someone's life is characterized by that. It means that's how God sees them. Because if, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ, placed your faith in him and him alone, those sins haven't been forgiven. And guess what? God does see you as a murderer. He looks at you and sees you as an adulterer or as an idolater. That's the way he views you. All sins, past, present, and future, were judged on the cross. All, all, all. If you're a child of God, you have been forgiven, and you will never pay the eternal penalty of sin. God doesn't consider you, when he looks at you, he doesn't consider you a fornicator. Even if that's a sin that you've committed, because he knows Christ paid the penalty for that sin. When God looks down, that's the whole visual imagery of the blood of Christ. When God looks down from heaven, 
in, in the Old Testament sense, they would have the, the, the sins were represented on the altar there, and, and the, all God would see is the blood, the blood that had been sprinkled. He didn't see your sins. He saw the work that his son did represented in shadow, in a shadow form. He doesn't see you that way. So, so, much, so many times we fail. I have. You have too. And then we, we label ourselves that. God doesn't label you that way. God loves you. You are his child. He loves you deep. Now, he may not approve. He doesn't approve of sinful behavior. But Christ paid the eternal penalty for that sin on the cross, which frees God to forgive you temporally from the temporal consequences of that sin when you confess that to him. We sell ourselves way short when it comes to our relationship with God. This is not to excuse any inappropriate behavior. He'll discipline you for it. You'll pay the price in time, not in eternity, but in time. So let's, let's use these passages as they are supposed to be used. Now back to verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. These three things are characteristic of, of uh, the fruit of the Spirit. It's not, an, it's not as extensive of a list as we see in, in Galatians chapter 5. But these are some of the things that cover in a broad way what it means to walk in the light. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. And I think all three of those are self-explanatory, so we won't dwell on them for too long. But it is possible to be a child of the light and, and not walk in the light, therefore not pr produce fruit that is consistent with the light. You see, it's the norm. I want to choose my terms carefully. It's the norm for the believer to produce goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's the norm. It's not necessarily common. You see, there's a distinction there. That's what ought to happen. That's the way we're designed to be. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's as common as it should be. That's the norm. Just like in the body, health is the norm. Disease is, is the aberration from health. Disease isn't the norm. Health should be the norm. Disease is, is a departure from health, at least in its most basic sense. Now, in verse 10, this is a place where we, we do have... I do have take a little bit of exception. It's one of the very, very few times that we have to do this, but I do take a little exception to the translation of verse 10. It, it says in my Bible, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's not exactly what it says. It, it really says approving what is pleasing to the Lord or acting consistently with what is pleasing to the Lord. As much as I would like to take this verse and say, therefore you should make sure you're in Bible study every time that the opportunity presents itself, that would really be unfair. That's not what it really says. And in fact, in most of your Bibles, if it does have the word uh, trying to learn, it should have a textual note or something in one of the margins that says that word really is, is proving or approving. Approving what is pleasing to the Lord. So what Paul is really speaking of here is a non-hypocritical expression of Christian behavior by someone who's a Christian. Living again consistently with whom... We are in Christ. Surely learning is a part of that. Perhaps that's why the editors of New American Standard chose that. Uh, but this verse is not so much about the learning part. It's about the doing part. Supposedly we've already learned in the first three chapters. Now we need to do. Now verse 11 is going to take just a moment. So I'm glad we saved just a little bit of time for this verse. And then 
Verses 12 through 14 will go fairly quickly. But let's, let's focus in just for a moment on verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Now, children of light should also refrain from joining the sons of disobedience in their deeds. But they also have a responsibility to reprove or to expose those deeds because they're unfruitful. This is the third command in this section. Don't participate, but reprove. Interesting here, in verse 11, the object of the command is not the person, it's the deed. True, so sometimes people are so associated with their deeds that it is, it's difficult to separate the two. For example, and I just, I just use this only as, as an example. Most of the time, we would say someone who practices homosexuality is a homosexual. So in, in that sense, it's, it's difficult, and they would label themselves that as, as well, so we're not, we're not saying anything drastically new to anybody, but, but they, would, they would so identify themselves with a particular sinful pattern uh, that it's difficult, difficult to distinguish between the two. But here... In this passage, Paul is not saying so much that, that the, the person is to be totally avoided. He's saying the sin of that person is to be totally avoided. I hope, I hope you see the, the significance of this. Sometimes people will tell us, and, and rightly so, evil companions corrupt good morals. It's a biblical principle. So therefore, you should avoid evil companions. But the Bible never tells us to avoid completely the unbeliever. And this is the reason why. If all of us completely avoided every unbeliever that we ever ran into, how is that unbeliever ever going to be evangelized? How are they ever going to see Christ's likeness in action? How are they going to have anybody ever, ever comfort them in the name of Jesus Christ if we totally avoided any exposure to unbelievers at all? So no, this passage is not, and never was meant to say, you need to avoid any contact with the sons of disobedience. It's also not saying you avoid any contact with a, a Christian who's being disobedient. You don't participate in the disobedience, and that takes some spiritual strength sometimes. It concerns me sometimes when I see people that I love or even my, my kids, you know, hanging around people that are, that I'm, I'm not real sure that's the direction they want to go. And I, and I pray that they'll be the influence on that person, bringing them back rather than getting sucked into it. We do have to be careful with that. But the key thing here is that it's the sin that is to be judged, not the person. At least in this passage. In this passage. Now, when it comes time for God to judge, if that person, God's going to judge the children of disobedience. He'll take care of that. But that's not our responsibility. We need to be very, very careful here. So the object of the imperative is not persons, but deeds. Not persons, but works. So if we can't 
if we, if we don't ever have any contact with the unbeliever, how are we going to evangelize them? If we never have any contact with believers who are walking out of fellowship, how are we going to encourage them to get back in fellowship? <coughs> Granted, there are times. There are times when fellowship does need to be cut off for, say, a believer who is walking so far out of fellowship with God that it's destructive for them, for the church, for relationships. Well, whenever a separation takes place, whenever discipline takes place in a church context, you know that that discipline is always to be designed for restoration. It's never to be designed totally in a punitive way. It's always designed to get the person's attention so they'll come back to God. And sometimes to get them to come back to God, you have to say, okay, that's it. You know, we, can't, we can't do this anymore. But we need to be, we need to be careful here, especially with the last phrase. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. I think all of us are going to amen that quietly, privately. We'll all say, okay, I get that. You don't need to beat me over the head with that. I get it. We're not supposed to do the things that, that characterize darkness. But what about this last phrase? Instead, even, expose them. Elekete is the way that this looks in its um, imperatival form, in the command form. This is a very special word that is so germane to the discussion that, that we need to talk about it for just a moment because we can take this and run with it. If we do it in the wrong direction, a lot of harm is going to be done. We don't want to do that. Uh, again, it's the sin that is, that is to be eclected, to put it into an English form. Not the person so much, although the person and the sin sometimes are going to be hard to separate. But what does it mean to expose them? Well, Andrew Lincoln put it this way, exposure by example. That is, by maintaining a contrasting lifestyle that consists of deeds of light. As the word was used in classical times, it, it had the meaning to disgrace or to put to shame. And it often carried with it a verbal rebuke. So there is that shade of meaning that's in the background of this word. But as it's being used here, in a contrast between people who walk in the light and people who are walking in darkness, inconsistent with who they are in the light, because remember this is written to believers, the first and the foremost way that we apply this passage is by example. By walking in the light ourselves, by not participating with them in the evil deed of darkness, not just going along to get along, but saying, no, nah, I'm going to have to let you do that one on your own. I, I can't do that. Well, why in the world can't you? Well, because, you know, because I'm a Christian and I know the Lord wouldn't want me to do that. Now, it takes guts to say that sometimes, especially if you're a younger person, when peer pressure is all the, the rage. First and foremost, in order to obey this command to expose them, in, order, in other words, the deeds, is we shine the light on it. How do we shine the light on it? By maintaining a contrasting lifestyle. And you don't have to be all self-righteous in order to do this. It can be done in, in a very, very kind way. Now, sometimes that's not enough. Now, this is the norm. This, this is the first and the foremost way that it should be done. And now we're talking about someone who is a believer that 
is in a lifestyle that's characterized by darkness instead of light, the first thing we do is that we live our lives in an exemplary way. Parents, parents have to be so careful with this. Sometimes we can tell our children or even our adult children, this is what you need to do, this, you're doing the wrong thing, it's not going to get through. But live in the right way. When, when people watch how you handle stress and adversity and prosperity, that speaks volumes to them. That's very convicting to other people. So that's, the, that's first and foremost. But there are times, it does happen, where the whole Matthew 7 idea comes into play. Judge not that you be not judged. And so we got that part. But you know that passage goes on to say, be careful before you take the speck out of someone else's eye, make sure there's not a log in your own. Take the log out of your own eye first so that you can see clearly that speck in someone else's eye. Now, it doesn't mean that the speck is irrelevant. Have you ever had a speck in your eye? Everyone has. A little, little tiny, tiny little piece of material feels like a boulder in there. So it's not irrelevant. Now, I've never had a log in my own eye. My, my Uncle Tommy, who died when he was 25, mom's much, much younger brother, came a long way later in life. Um, he did have a log in his eye, in a sense. Somebody played playing Indians or whatever, and Cowboys and Indians shot him with a stick right through the eye, blinded him, was blind for the rest of his 25 years. I'm sure that uh, hurt badly. But the point is, you know, I'm sure when that happened, he couldn't see anything out of that eye. So we're real quick to want to judge everybody else, but we don't judge ourselves first. Now, there are times when that second aspect has to come in play, and that's the verbal rebuke or the confrontation. There are times when that happens, but not until we have exposed the evil deed by our own righteous lifestyle, not in a self-righteous way, but in, in a way of true holiness, by having a lifestyle that's consistent with uh, what we say we believe. It happens in church leadership. It's happened in our church. I hate it. Please don't make me do it. <laughs> but there are times when things come up that are so egregious that they have to be confronted. Before this happens, believe me, I pray fervently. I pray fervently that they'll get it worked out before I have to confront it. Because I don't like having to do that. And if you like having to do it, there's something wrong with you. There really is. It's, it's very difficult. It's very painful. And, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But sometimes it, people who are in the leadership position, whether it's in a church or a business or anywhere else, they have to do that. But it needs to be bathed in fervent prayer before it ever happens. And it should be, in a somewhat healthy church, it should be a relatively rare occurrence. But it does have to happen. So I hope you see what this word exposed means here. First and foremost, it's a lifestyle. First and foremost, it's you living by example. If, it, if that happens and it doesn't work out, then there could be a verbal rebuke. That's a part of it. Just be very, very careful. Let, let me give you a vanilla example. Something that's strictly vanilla. That, that won't, It's probably nothing you're thinking about. Let's say we, have, we go to lunch with some friends that we haven't seen for a while. Let's say we also know that everybody at the table is a believer. Let's say the lunch comes, we're in a public place, it's at a restaurant, and three of the four people at the table bow their heads to give thanks for the meal. 
the one person who hadn't been walking in fellowship with the Lord is not used to that. They're just kind of looking around like, well, what's, what's going on here? Now, first of all, you ought not to be looking, but let's just say, let's say you were and say you noticed that they had not bowed their heads. What do you do then? Do you stop the prayer? Could, could you hold on just a second there, Bob? John over here hadn't bowed his head. John, I'd like to confront you about that. Don't you know that the Lord gave us this meal? What, are you embarrassed to show people that you're a Christian? What's the matter with you? That's not the way you'd handle it, is it? No. You'd just go ahead, you'd bow your head, you'd have your prayer, and hopefully by you living in a righteous way, it would convict them that, you know what, maybe next time I need to do that too. Now, that's a very vanilla example, but I hope, I hope you see the point. So not only are you not supposed to do them, but you're to expose them first by contrasting lifestyle. Second, if it comes to it, after fervent prayer, then perhaps a verbal rebuke may have to be the case. In, ver in verse 12, uh, briefly, it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done in secret by them. Not only do you not need to do them, you don't even need to talk about them. It's, it, shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be the subject of a polite lunch because sometimes, you know how we start that off? Listen, I, I just want to let you know this. Um, you know what they're doing. Well, it can quickly turn from information to gossip. You know, there's, nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with information if the person needs to know, but then sometimes it just becomes morbid gossip, and I think that's one of the reasons why. You're not even supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to do it. You're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to participate in it. In verse, in verse 13, but these things all become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. So you expose it, expose the deed of darkness, then they have to make a choice. Like the prayer thing, and I said it was a very vanilla Thing. Like, they have to make a choice the next time. Certainly the next time they're with you. Are they going to look around like, like they're not a one who's thankful for their food? Or are they going to go ahead and, and learn by example and bow their head too? What happens the next time they're in private? Maybe they say, you know what? I have to love those guys. They bow their head when they pray. I think I'm going to bow my head and, and pray for the meal as well. Then you've won them. Then you've done what you're supposed to do without the verbal rebuke. And I guess there may be a time when that would even happen in my vanilla example, but it's not as often as it is practiced. Finally, verse 14 probably was, an, was a quotation from an early hymn of the church, most likely, maybe even from Isaiah 61. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Listen, if you're behaving this way, Paul says, let's get with it. Alarm clock's going off. Time is short. Don't participate in these evil deeds. Walk as children of light. We, as children of God, have a responsibility to live as children of light and not as children of darkness. Next week, we'll talk about what it means to walk in wisdom.